Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. We're going to do a fascinating study today with Dr. Michael Wise on the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, Michael is a scholar in residence, a professor of Hebrew Bible and ancient languages. He doesn't have one. He has two PhDs. So I guess I have to call him Dr. Doctor. This could be a long <laughs> hour. Michael, how are you? I'm well, Bill. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I saw you present at a conference in May, and it was spectacular. I was writing notes as fast as I could. And um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the greatest biblical discovery in modern times. True or false? True. Okay, good. True. So we're off to a good start. We are. Yeah. We are. For a lot of people listening, they might go, Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, what is that? Yeah, I, I find as I go around and talk that most people have heard of the phrase, and they know they're important somehow. And Christians know that they're important for the Bible, but they don't know what they are, exactly. Mm. Yeah. So I can say it quite succinctly, and then we can get into details as you you want. Yeah. The Dead Sea Scrolls are a collection of nearly a thousand texts found in 11 caves along the shores of the Dead Sea in modern-day Israel. That's why they're called Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay. The caves are right near the, the Dead Sea, within a mile or so from the shore, at the closest cave anyway. And uh, in the 1940s, mid-1940s, and on through the mid-1950s in 11 caves, archaeologists and Bedouin, who were both competing to find these texts, discovered nearly a thousand of them. Wow. And we think there were probably several hundred more that totally disintegrated before modern times. Michael, where did they get the idea that these uh, documents existed? Why, Why were they looking for them? Where'd they get this idea? Well, the famous story that's told is one about a shepherd, <laughs> okay. right? An Arab shepherd uh, who was shepherding goats, actually. Okay. And one of his goats wandered away and around a corner, and he couldn't see it. Just like a goat. They do that. Yeah. And somebody he thought maybe somebody had got his goat, so he went <laughs> looking. And... <laughs> You've used that before, haven't you? No. Okay, good. No. <laughs> I, lo- I love fresh material, by the it's way. It's fresh. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, you can keep it. Well, no, it's going to patent pending on this show. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so so the goat went running somewhere, and he didn't know where. So he came around the corner, and he looked, and he saw a cave. And it was a kind of a difficult cave to get in because it had two entrances, one down low, small enough for a goat, but too small for him. And then up higher, a bigger kind of uh, entrance, but he'd have to pile rocks on top of each other to kind of clamber up and then heft himself over and down. He didn't want to do that if he didn't have to, so he threw a rock in on the in the lower level entrance mm-hmm. and expecting to hear a clack and his goat would come running out if it was right. in there. And he was hoping it was because he had no other better ideas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and instead what he heard was a shattering of what turned out to be a large clay pot. Wow. And that was the beginning because when he, 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 he figured, oh, I better go in there after all. So he did the the long way around Mm -hmm. method that I described and lowered himself in. And he found along the walls opposite the entrance about 20 large pots. And 
standing some, something like 18 inches high, and his rocket hit and, and crushed uh, one of them. And in the, in the sherds, that's what we call pottery fragments, he saw scroll material. There were mm. scrolls, and that was the beginning. That was the, di- the discovery of the first seven of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was a, a chance discovery, really. He, so he ran back and told the elders of the tribe, and things took, took off from there. Okay, so he was in, he was doing goat retrieval. Yes, and he stumbled uh, upon the greatest discovery, biblical discovery in modern times. That's right. That's uh, okay. I love this story. <laughs> so now they are going to be gathered, and whose property are they right now? Is it finders keepers? Is well, the shepherd boy a rich guy right now? The shepherd eventually became reasonably prosperous. Okay. He and his tribe. The Ta'amira Bedouin, as they're known. Okay. Um, they had actually been wandering through that area. They were uh, the, the type of Bedouin who would travel with their herds and move from season to season and following the, the food. So they had been going through that area for centuries. Um, they didn't really profit nearly as much as the middleman. So what happened is they brought these first scrolls to a middleman, that is another um, Arab. Mm-hmm who owned an antiquities shop in Bethlehem. And his name Whoa. was Kondo. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and Kondo began to make the contacts through which auspices the, the scrolls eventually were purchased. Okay. In, the first seven were in two chunks. And the whole idea that there were scrolls in these caves got everybody thinking. Uh, first of all, the, the tribesmen went looking in other, in other caves. And after a while, the always a little slow on the uptake archaeologists decided, you know what, why should we wait for these guys to come and bring them and sell them to us? Maybe we can find them ourselves. Plus which, they won't destroy the archaeological context, which mm-hmm. is important to, to scholars as they try to understand the meaning of what they find. So that began a contest that went on for, like I said, about 10 years. And actually the archaeologists lost. They... The, the Bedouin found many more of the text than they did. But ultimately, as I say, the actual exact number is 931 scrolls. Okay. And do you know approximately how many clay jars there were? Well, there were not only clay jars in that cave. There were clay clay jars in some of the other caves. Okay. Most of them empty. Okay. And they've come to be known as scroll jars. But really, they were not for that purpose per se. They were in the caves, brought there because they were people fleeing probably at the time of the Roman destruction of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So that would put us in A.D. 70 roundabouts, fleeing the city as kind of refugees. People would go out to the caves of Judea, and they had been doing that at tough times for centuries since the time of Nebuchadnezzar and the destruction of the Temple of Solomon You know, back in 586 B.C., so for many centuries— when times got tough, the Jewish people would flee to the desert to try to save their lives and what property they could carry, mm-hmm. and and they would have to provision themselves. And these jars were for those provisions for food, okay. so they contained grain and things such as that originally, and some of them ended up being used to store scrolls. Okay. A lot of the scrolls actually were put on the ground of some of the caves. The biggest discovery was Cave 4, that's what we call, all the caves got numbers. So there's cave one through 11. Cave four is the one where, which was the mother load. Over 550 of the 931 scrolls were found in that one cave. 
And uh, was that and the original jars? That, that wasn't the original cave. No. Okay. Cave one was the original cave. Okay. And then, of course, two, three, four. It's the fourth one. Okay. So they did go it's in, in order. They did okay. go in, All right. in order. I yes. just had to ask. When you said they're on the floor, there was a laying on the floor of the cave? Yes. These documents? Yes. How did they survive? They didn't, totally. Okay. So when we talk about scrolls, we have to keep in mind what we're really saying. The first seven texts were well-preserved, and they were really actually scrolls, right? Mm-hmm. That is, you could unwind them, and the longest one was a copy of the book of Isaiah. All 66 columns of the book wow. were preserved, at least some. That is, some of them were damaged a bit, yeah. but... So not every single word was there, but every chapter or it was was there in the columns of that scroll. Whereas when you get to K four, what we're talking about when we say scroll is anything from something the size of a fingernail. Mm. It's a small fragment that's left of one of one of the texts to something uh, about the size of a eight and a half to eleven uh, and eleven page. You know, so we're talking about typically much smaller portions that have survived. And the very reason they haven't survived better is that they were on the floor subject to the chemistry of the soil and to the critters who like to eat them. Sure. Rats in particular like to use that stuff for nests. Oh, wow. So how would an explorer who's going into a cave to try to collect documents do it? Because if there's pieces as small as a fingernail, I could guarantee I'm going to step on something. Right. So And not know it. So even today, Bill, you might find this interesting. There are ongoing explorations of the caves of Judea, even this very day that we're sitting here. Okay. So now that we know that there's stuff there, all of the caves not only need to be explored, but re-explored and then re-explored again because our technology keeps getting better. Mm-hmm. And the very point that you're, you're getting at, that is how do we detect these things, is the essence. That is, maybe we can find stuff that earlier people couldn't find because we have better detection uh, techniques. Mm-hmm. So what they're doing at the point we're talking about today is they're actually digging the soil of these bed, of these caves down to bedrock and sifting it in sifters that will catch the smallest fragment of any kind of thing because they're looking for all kinds of evidence not just scrolls but bones and pottery and those sorts of things that coins that help us date texts. Uh, so we we are still finding, in, in fact, this last year, in one of the uh, caves related to the Dead Sea Scrolls, but not the same exact, uh, that is, it's related to a later time in history, but there are scrolls of that time too, um, known as the Bar Kokhba Revolt, some 60 years after the one that destroyed the temple. The Jews revolted again. Most Christians have never heard of that revolt. I, I think I'm hearing it for the first time. Yes. Well, the first time I heard it was in a lecture I think you gave. This is the second time I've heard it. Well, it's, it's, it's something that's important to know about, really, because... Yeah, say it again and explain it, it again it, slowly. So in the year 132, and lasting for four years, so to 136, the, peop, the Jewish people of what we call today Palestine or Israel um, revolted again against Rome. So they okay. had lost the big one, the big yeah. one that we know about that mm-hmm. destroyed the temple. This one was even bigger. 70% of the Jewish people died. It was literally a genocide. I'm not, I mean, it's not just a description. It was policy. Wow. The Romans determined that they would destroy these ridiculously rebellious, impossible-to-control people, starting in the north and working their way south, just kill everybody, wow. scorched-earth policy. Well, again, as in the previous time, the people fled, those who could, mm-hmm. to the caves and brought with them texts. And interestingly enough, this very last spring... We found new fragments from that war. 
in one of the caves. By these new techniques, I'm describing where they dig down to the bedrock. You have to understand, you walk into one of these caves, if it's, if it's pristine, most of them aren't, because mm-hmm. most of them have been investigated at, at this point by the Bedouin or by archaeologists. Mm-hmm. But you walk in, and you're standing on six to eight feet of bat guana. Mm-hmm. Most people don't know what that is. It's, I do know what that is. It, it, it's bat dung. Yeah. It's white, and it's... It's in and the it's air. Piled high. It's piled high and it's very dry. Imagine, you know, what yeah. we used to find on the on the lawn when our dog had been there, you yeah. know, a month earlier right. or something. Um, only imagine that's two thousand years of accumulation. Wow. Um, and so, <laughs> <laughs> you have to have a strong stomach. Oh, I would imagine so. Yes. For for this kind of work. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. It, it is. It is physically uh, demanding. It yeah. really is. All right, Dr. Michael Wise is my, my guest. We're talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I have lots of questions for him, and I bet you do too. And if you have a question, you can send it over. The text line is open just for you, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back after a short break. Thanks for listening to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I'm Carmen LeBurge. If you enjoy what you're listening to here, consider subscribing to other great Faith Radio podcasts like mine. Search Mornings with Carmen LeBurge at MyFaithRadio.com or wherever you listen to podcasts and hit subscribe. I'm back with Dr. Michael Wise. Today we're talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Fascinating topic. There's so much that we need to learn and to know because Michael was telling me during the break that uh, copies of all the biblical text except Esther have been discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's right, Bill. By biblical, I mean Old Testament. I want people to understand there's no copies of the New Testament. Of course. Um, People don't know that necessarily because the scrolls were hidden, we think, right around the time of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So right around A.D. 70. And the New Testament books, some of them were around at that point, but none of them are in the caves. Okay. So we're all, when I say Bible, biblical texts, if people can just understand, I mean Old Testament texts. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we've got 212 of those 931 texts I talked about are copies of books of the Old Testament, many of them in multiple copies. Of course, fragmentary, you understand, like I was saying. So we have, let's say, uh, over we have thirty six copies of the Book of Psalms, uh, but none of them is complete. Mm-hmm. So even putting them all together, we wouldn't have every psalm and every word of every psalm represented. Nevertheless, these are the oldest copies of the Bible, Old Testament texts by a thousand years, compared to what we ever what we had before, and that is enormously important because it shows us how carefully the Bible has been trans transmitted. Remember, God gave these books to human beings like you and me, and one of the first things we discover as people is that we make mistakes. Um, We make lots of mistakes. So um, as scribes worked on these and passed the 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 scrolls down, it was inevitable that they would make spelling errors, they would actually leave a word out here and there by accident, that sort of thing. And so the, the farther you get back towards the original text, the fewer mistakes there are. Because you haven't happened yet, mm-hmm. so to speak. And so you want to get back as far back in time as you can, as close to the time of what we call the autographs. That's a fancy word for the originals. 
as we can. And when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, we, we took a quantum leap. We went back a thousand years more than we had been able to be before. That's breathtaking, isn't it? It is. So what did we discover with a document that we just find that's a thousand years older than the copy that we had in existence? What does it tell us? Well, it tells us, as I said, and it's important to notice this, that the Bible's been passed down very, very carefully. Mm-hmm. That's probably not surprising to people. Uh, yeah, the God that authored it certainly is able to preserve it, isn't he? That's right. Yeah. And I want to I want to say at this point just something before we go further. I, I think we sometimes get defensive as Christians as we are talking about the scriptures, and we want to prove them by things like archaeological discoveries. Yeah. And... I don't like that mentality. I want us to have a much more confident mentality. I think the scriptures are the word of God because Jesus said so. That is, we have dominical authority. Yeah. And that's enough. So when we're talking about this question of, well, what do we get from this? When I tell you that not only do we get answers, we also get questions, that won't be threatening. So... The Dead Sea Scrolls show us how carefully the Bible has been passed down, but they also show us how much more complicated the process of getting our scriptures was than we knew before. So, for example, uh, at the time of Jesus, there was more variation in the text of the Bible, even though the text we know Mm -hmm. existed. There were other variances, variants that existed as well. And we didn't know that. Um, We didn't know that the closer we get back, farther we go back in time, the more complexity we see, not the less complexity Mm. in the whole situation. So we see how very complicated it was. And that doesn't surprise you, does it? It doesn't. Okay. And all new discoveries I've learned Mm -hmm. in my years of, of working in the field, all new discoveries help us, but they also raise new questions. And that's a good thing. Because when we get new questions, we're actually learning. New questions tell us what we don't know that we didn't know we didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that's valuable. Mm -hmm. It's valuable in any field, right? That's I think that's one of the major questions I ask myself. For example, as a teacher, I ask myself, I ask God, I say, Lord, what what am I not seeing? And so I don't know that I don't know. Right. I constantly have to ask that question. Uh, we, we all have so many blind spots. Mm. One of the reasons we need each other. And it's important that we re, we remain curious. It is. Mm-hmm. We have to be curious. So we can be very confident in our scriptures, but we have seen with the discovery of the scrolls new questions such as, um, when did the Bible, the Old Testament, actually come to be the Old Testament? That is, when did it come together? Mm-hmm. And one of the things we find is that it hadn't happened yet at the time of Jesus. That really? Is, yes. And what do I mean by that? Huh. I mean this. The, the holy books were there, but people didn't know that there weren't going to be more. So there were, so we were at a stage prior to the time when we know here's our Bible, there's nothing to be added, there's nothing to be taken away. What we mean by that phrase is that we have a canon. Mm-hmm. A special word, C-A-N-O-N, that scholars use to describe the, the collection of Bible, of Bible books. Mm-hmm. We believe that they are the inerrant word of God, and there's no other books that are that. So as Christians, we would argue against things like the Book of Mormon. That's not the, book, that's not the word of God. It's in addition to mm-hmm. the word that we have in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. 
So it's not. It's not okay, so to speak. It's not equal. Well, uh, in the time of Jesus, people knew that they had holy books, but they but they didn't yet have um, a finished collection. They didn't know they had that. So uh, there was the potential for more to come. And that's important because why? Well, for example, what if we said there could be no more prophets after the time of Malachi? Well, then we, could, we couldn't have Jesus or John the Baptist, could we? Mm-hmm. They were prophets. They were, Jesus was more than a prophet, but he was a prophet. And John the Baptist was a great prophet. As Jesus said, the greatest uh, ever, mm-hmm. um, one of the greatest ever and the greatest um, of his sort that had ever been. And if we close the door on that by saying, well, the canon is closed at the time of Malachi, we don't allow for the New Testament either. Mm-hmm. So these are the kind of things I mean. We see that people were still open to the potential of new holy books. And some of the Dead Sea Scrolls evidently were considered by some people to be that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. For example, the book of Enoch. People have heard of Enoch. He's, he's, in, the New, he's in the Old Testament. He's in the New Testament. He's mentioned. Um, who was he? He was the seventh guy down from Adam in the book of Genesis. And when we have those genealogies, remember, in chapters 4 and 5, we get to him really soon. And he is a guy who, according to Scripture, never died. He walked with God, we're told, and then he was not. That's mm-hmm. literally what the text says. Then he was not, which is yeah. a mysterious. Part. Michael's making air quotes in the studio right now, yes. just so you know. <laughs> when he said was not. All right. Yes. Thank you. So what did that mean? Well, people came to believe that it meant that, uh, that he had not died and that he had been taken up to God without having undergone death. And in fact, they later believed that he had written books. And some of those books, ostensibly, were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have, a, we have Enochic writings. That's how we describe them. And uh, so the, the, there's, it's clear that those were considered holy books by some Christians, or by some, by some Christians, but also by some Jews mm-hmm. at the time of the scrolls. Why did they not make it into the canon? Well, they did in Ethiopia. In Ethiopia? Yes. Say more about that. The Ethiopian Old Testament canon consists of 66 books. I said Old Testament. Right. I know our canon is 66, but that's new and old, 39 and 27. I'm just talking old. They have 66 books. They have 66 books, including Enoch and Jubilees. Jubilees is the second book that was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's a kind of retelling of Genesis up through Exodus 15 with certain additions and certain um, emphases to make the points the author wanted to make, probably writing around 200 B.C. So... When we start talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls, we're in a whole new world. Oh, it sounds that way. A world of books that we've never heard of. Yeah. A world of thoughts we never knew people had. We're in a world of literature that existed at the time of Jesus, which he surely knew about and interacted with people about, um, that we didn't even know existed. Uh, Titles whose names never survived to come to our time. Mm Mm-hmm. Michael, what are we supposed to know about this information and how should it be applying to our life or not? Well, first of all, we can, I, I would say the Dead Sea Scrolls break up into two big ideas, you might say. The Old Testament text and, and how we got the scriptures mm-hmm. on the one hand and the world of Jesus and what was in the air 
so to speak. What was the world of thought of his day on the other hand? So those are two really important topics for us as believers and two things that we really should and probably do care about. Um, so we can, we can go down either of those paths and we'll find it very rewarding. I, th- I think the, um, the thing that we find for the New Testament stuff, especially, um, I'll give you a suggestion here. One of the ideas that, that emerges from the study of all this literature that was being read and, and distributed at the time of Jesus, we see that the thing that led to the breakup of the, of the society into all these different groups like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and there are groups following this guy and that guy. Um, one of the groups ended up being the followers of Jesus, as you know. The biggest thing that led to, the, to that kind of fracturing was the question of the law, the Jewish law. How does it apply? How is it to be interpreted? That was why people broke up. Mm-hmm. so to speak, like churches, unfortunately, go their different ways. Why do they do that? For a variety of reasons. But in the Old Testament world, it was uh, and the world of the New Testament as we come into that time, what divided people was ideas about the law of Moses. How is it going to be applied? And so as we look at the New Testament, notice how often Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees about the law. That's true. Why is that? Yeah, that's a great point. I wish I would have made that. Yeah, but I didn't. the son of G- the son of God comes down to Earth for three years, and he's, what is he te- teaching us? Is he teaching us about quantum physics? Is no. He, is he teaching us about the the unified field theory, or you know so, the sort of things that modern physicists say are the most important questions? He, no, he's talking about whether you tithe Dylan Cummins, or whether you're allowed to eat stalks of uh, wheat when you're walking through the, the field on the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Those are questions of the, of the law of Moses, and mm-hmm. Jesus was very much involved in those discussions. Mm-hmm. That's so alien to our minds, Bill. It is. I'm, I'm having a hard time. We don't care about those questions, quite honestly. No. Uh, we didn't know we were supposed to. I now didn't that know we're I was to- supposed to. And now that we're told we are, we, we, we really wish we didn't have to. <laughs> yeah. You're disrupting my mind right now. Yeah. Yeah. So in the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, Dr. Michael Wise is my guest, and he is an expert on Dead Sea Scrolls. So they have found copies of all the Old Testament text except the book of Esther. What's with that? Well, first of all, go back to the question that I, or the the matter that I talked about earlier. We found these many, many hundreds of texts, but some of the texts we think didn't even survive. We think that because we have what might call label tags that are, that's all that's left is the tag. So that tells us that once it was a scroll and the rest of it's gone. And we've got enough of them to think we are lacking about 300 texts. So we had 1,200. So maybe Esther was there is the point. All right. But so far as we know, it wasn't. It isn't in what we have. So let's deal with that. Why was that not there? What's wrong with Esther? Uh, Two things. Two things you could say. First of all, uh, and we don't know which one is the reason why it wasn't in the collections. Okay. But these these are things that are facts. Esther is a book that's not that that has to do with a festival that isn't described in the books of Moses. Mm, okay. The books of Moses, especially the books that is in uh, Leviticus and Numbers, we have these festivals, these holy festivals of the calendar year in, in that the ancient Hebrews and then later the Jewish people followed, like Passover and Pentecost and Tabernacles, those great festivals when they would go to the temple. And Jesus always went 
at those times, for example. Um, some people, some Jewish people, felt that the only festivals that people should celebrate were the ones in the books of Moses. And since Esther is about another time, and it's after the time of the book of Mo- books of Moses, and so it's not in those books, uh, it's not... A ho- it's not a holy festival that we should celebrate in the same sense. Therefore, we don't have the book for it. That's one answer. But there's probably another answer that's more important, and that is this. Esther marries a Gentile. And that was no. Ooh, yeah. I for for many of the Jewish people of the day. Um even as today it is in Israel. It's a matter of considerable interest and uh, controversy. And people don't like it, many of them, when a, when a Jewish man or woman marries uh, a Gentile person because the notion is that that is how our people come to an end. If we don't marry other Jews, we don't have Jewish babies. Mm-hmm. So uh, we need to marry other Jews. And that idea was already there in the, in the time of Jesus and... And, uh, and Gentiles were considered unclean. So there was also all of that stuff that we don't think about too much, but the ancient Jews did, mm-hmm. all the laws of purity. And so for those reasons, uh, we think Esther didn't make the cut. Interesting. That's really interesting. Dr. Michael Wise is my guest, and he's an expert on Dead Sea Scrolls. Michael, is there, uh, as we found these documents, was there multiple languages in these documents? Yes, there are. Those are more than Hebrew? Hebrew is the majority language, but we have um, about 120 texts written in Aramaic, a language related to Hebrew, not to be confused with Arabic. People hear the two. They both begin with A. They're both something like Hebrew, but they're not the same languages at all. So Aramaic, and then there's a minority of texts in Greek. So Palestine at the time was a trilingual society. Mm -hmm. So, for example, it's likely that Jesus knew all three to some, to some degree. He was a, primarily a, a speaker of Aramaic in his day-to-day life from what we know from the book of Mark, for example, where all the loan words, all the non-Greek words are taken from Aramaic. Mm-hmm. But um, we think that Jesus almost certainly could read Hebrew because he talks about the, t- the Old Testament all the time in a way that indicates a knowledge of the text mm-hmm. that he probably got because he had learned to read, that was a minority thing yeah. in the day. Okay, And also, Greek was widely spoken. It mm-hmm. was widely spoken in, in Galilee. Jesus' family, his father and his brothers, and he probably went to Sepphoris, which was about a three-mile walk up the hill from Nazareth. Mm-hmm. And that was a Greek-speaking city where, there was a, where a lot of people lived. They were Grecized. The term that we use is Hellenized. They, they lived a semi-Greek lifestyle um, a kind of modified Judaism. And mm-hmm. so Jesus would have been around people who were spoke, spoke all those languages and the, the texts of the Dead Sea Scrolls reflect that society wow. as well. So interesting. Dr. Michael Wise is my guest. We're going to take a little break. We'll be back and continue our discussion on the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you have a question or comment, 877-933-2484. Show with Bill Arno. 
So a young Bedouin shepherd following a goat that had gone astray tossed a rock into one of the caves along the sea cliffs and heard a crashing sound, and the rock had hit a ceramic pot containing scrolls that were later later determined uh, to be nearly 20 centuries old. Dr. Michael Wise is my guest. He's an expert on the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we are learning all kinds of things and the importance of this discovery maybe the greatest biblical discovery in modern times and what we learn about uh, what we learn from them uh, there's no end to this there's no bottom to this topic michael no there isn't we're no. still we're still working there's a, it's a it's a it's an industry at this point bill okay. there are scholars who are what we call qumranologists okay uh, their their whole career is spent writing and studying these texts and Qumran, is that the village where they found Qumran this? is the name of the village or the, the site closest to the caves where okay. we think some of the people who used the scrolls lived. Okay. Yes. So when we get into the, the, this discovery and we have this find of this magnitude, I'm just curious from a ownership standpoint, is it owned by a country or government or who owns the Dead Sea Scrolls? The answer is uh, nobody knows. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's like a lot of legal questions. You don't know the answer until a judge decides it. Okay. But there are claims. Okay. What are the right. claims? So when the scrolls were first found, they were in Jordanian territory at the time. You have to remember, okay, this is 1948. The British mandate has ended and they've divided the land, right? So we've got the creation of Israel right around the very same time that the scrolls are found. And that meant also the creation of Jordan and its, its boundaries. And they were not the same as they are today. So the place where the scrolls were found right along the Dead Sea was then not in Israel, but it was in Jordan. And it remained in Jordan's, in Jordan's hands until 1967 in the Six-Day War. So for 20 years, through the whole period of the discovery of the scrolls and through the beginning of their publication... When Israel then took the eastern part of Jerusalem in 1967, they also captured the scrolls because they were kept in a museum in that part of the city. Okay. And ever since then, Israel has maintained that it owns the scrolls, and it does have them. But, <laughs> and we all know that, that's important. Well, who has them probably is not going to let them go. That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. And, uh, and so this is an issue, and... Nowadays, of course, in our world today, there's a lot more sensitivity about these kind of things. As you probably know, and as our listeners probably know, people argue about who owns the things that are now in modern Western museums that were discovered in other countries that were once colonized. Right. Right. Uh, So who owns those and shouldn't they go back to the country whose treasures they actually originally were? And that's an important concept. We have to give it a lot of weight. Uh, It's ethical. So what's the right thing here is a very difficult question, really. Because even though the scrolls were found in Jordan, they represent the cultural legacy of Israel. After all, the most, almost all of them are Hebrew documents, uh, and they are Jewish documents, mm-hmm. right? So that's whose culture they represent. But the boundaries, legally speaking, uh, complicate the issue. What, what did that would it ever? And then the Jordanians would want it for the value. I mean, they're they're you can't place a value on these. That's right. That's right. The scroll actually when the when the scrolls were discovered and they began to and scholars began to work on them. It's kind of an interesting story. Uh, 
how, who was going to actually work on these scrolls, who would publish them. The way it, was work, it worked out, the Jordanians formed a team of eight young scholars who were biblical scholars recommended by leading lights in the field back in the 1940s. These were all young men. They were men, notice. None of them was Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a predominance of Catholics, actually, among the team of eight. And they went to Jerusalem and they worked for the 19, from, from 1952, 53 to 1960, supported by money paid by Nelson Rockefeller. He was interested in this. At that time, the money ran out, and they had to go out to their different universities where they become employed. And for many, many years, most of the scrolls remained unpublished. They did not come out in full until 2002. Mm-hmm. So that's 50, 60 years. And, and during all that time, scholars could not see them. Most scholars could not see them. So this was a huge controversy. It's been a part of the story of the scrolls. Mm-hmm. And in, the pro- and in the process of all that, the, the, the people who had the scrolls made copies of the photographs so that there were photographs of all the scrolls in eight different locations in the world today, eight libraries, in case there's the destruction of the originals in Israel. Mm-hmm. And that's been a part of the story, too, that, that trying to get the scrolls out has been a struggle. Uh, they're out now. Uh, so there's always been controversy about these texts, Bill. Okay, of one sort or another. Mm-hmm. Michael, when you talk about the extra biblical or apocryphal books that were found as well, uh, what do we learn, or what's the most interesting thing about that part of the dis- of the discovery? Well, let's. What do we mean by an apocryphal work? Let's, That's a good question. Let's, let's start there. Let's talk about what that means. What we mean by that is it's a book from about the time of the Bible, Old or New Testament, that isn't in the New Testament or Old Testament, mm-hmm. and yet it represents that culture in that time. So when we talk about the Apocrypha, in the first instance, that means the 11 or 12 books that are in Catholic Bibles that aren't in our Protestant Bibles. Okay. Okay. But it can also refer to texts of that broader world that were not that aren't in any of those collections of Scripture. And that's what we're talking about here. So we... I'll give you an example of what we learn. Uh, in the New Testament, we are told that the Lord, uh, uh, when he died and was crucified and died, he descended uh, to hell, and there he preached to the angels who were imprisoned. That's talked about in Peter's writings. Mm-hmm. Well, who were those angels? Why were they there? The book of Enoch that we find among the apocryphal writings has lots of details on that, on that including the names of the angels, how many there are what they did, why they were imprisoned, lots of those kinds of details. So one of the things that the apocryphal uh, store, uh, books tell us is more about the Bible. We have to understand, or the Bible stories, we have to understand that this world and uh, was very, very centered on modern, what we moderns would call religion, right? That's all they write about. All of the Dead Sea Scrolls are religious books. Mm-hmm. So all these apocryphal writings are religious books. And for those of us who are interested in the faith of Israel and the relationship of that to our faith as Christians, all these things are extremely interesting, and they actually help us to understand the Bible better, mm-hmm. what the Bible says. Yeah. Dr. Michael Wise is my guest. We're going to continue our discussion on the Dead Sea Scrolls after a little break. We'll be right back.
Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com. I'm back with Dr. Michael Wise, and we're chatting about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Boy, there's a lot to learn, and I feel like this hour is going too fast, and I don't, I don't have enough uh, time with you, Dr. Wise. So I'm going to get right to one of the big points that I have, and that is the Messiah and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Talk about those two. Yes, well, what we find among the Dead Sea Scrolls is a number of extraordinary texts that talk about ideas about the coming Messiah. We remember that we're talking about Old Testament, Old Testament period only. books. Yep. So these are before, most of them written before the time of Christianity. Certainly okay. hidden after Christianity, but they're written before it. So we don't have New Testament books. We only have Old Testament books. And so we we discover very important connections to ideas about the Messiah at the time of Jesus. When Jesus came, why wasn't he recognized by everybody for who he was? That's a question many Christians have. And we often hear that there were different ideas about the Messiah. Well, okay, well, what were, what were those ideas? Right. And, and, and so this is a place where we learn the answer to that, that we didn't, like I say, these are ideas we didn't know about before. One of the texts that's most especially interesting is a text that we can figure out by handwriting analysis. You might find that interesting. We can date these texts in part by analyzing the forms of the letters because we know that those forms changed over time and we can analyze according to the form they're in. We know where we are in time. So we're talking about a text that was written about 80 BC. So 80 years before the birth of Jesus, 110 years before his ministry. And I'm going to compare that text to uh, a passage in the book of Luke. Okay. Okay. You may recall, uh, folks, that... At one time, Jesus was approached by disciples of John the Baptist, who was then in prison, and they had questions for Jesus that actually John had sent them to ask. He had, he had heard about the things Jesus was doing, and he was wondering. It didn't seem like this was exactly what he was expecting from Jesus, and so he asked, are you the one, or shall we expect another? And, and Jesus answers the question by talking this way. He says, uh, so he replied to the messengers, Go and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. So he's, he answers John's question, Are you the one, by talking about what he's doing. He doesn't answer yes or no. He says, You decide, John. Mm-hmm. Here's what I'm doing. Does this fit the criteria of the Messiah and what he's going to do? And one of the things that's in that list that probably goes right by people because they don't understand the time, he talks about the Messiah raising the dead. Whoa. And, and we know Jesus did that. Mm-hmm. We have stories about this. Yes, we do. But where in the Old Testament do we read that the Messiah is going to raise the dead? Because everything else he says is stuff that's in the prophecies of Isaiah and other, and other uh, Old Testament texts. But this is nowhere. There's no book of the Old Testament that says the Messiah is going to raise the dead. Where does this idea come from? Why does Jesus do it? And the answer, in part, I think, is if we found in this text that I'm talking about, known as the Messianic Apocalypse, that's how scholars call it, it talks about what's going to happen at the time of the Messiah. As I said, written about 80 BC, so mm-hmm. way before Jesus was around, and so it's not talking about him. It's not descriptive of him. It's predictive 
And it says that the Messiah is going to, it says that the time the Messiah comes, Yerapei Chalalim, I'm now speaking in the Hebrew of the text, Yerapei Chalalim, he will heal those who are wounded or sick, and he will make the dead alive, i.e. he will raise the dead. Mm-hmm. This is so here we have in this in this in this ancient non-biblical Dead Sea Scroll a prediction that when the Messiah comes, he's going to heal the sick, which we know from other places, but also raise the dead. Wow. And, Je- <laughs> and Jesus does. The thrill never ends. Yes. Mm-hmm. So here's an interesting question. Well, why did Jesus raise the dead? And of course, there's more than one answer to that. I've, it, he does it out of mercy, out of his love, out of his concern for the people who have lost a loved one and the person who's died, of course, too. But I think that an important aspect of it is to show who he is. Yeah, express his divinity. Yes. Yeah. And this is part of who he's supposed to be according to texts that aren't in the Bible. The Dead Sea Scrolls have told us something we never knew. Wow, that is just so fascinating. All right, you've studied this for a long, long time. What are some highlights in your brain that you, that were thrilling for you to, to, to discover or uncover? Well, what I just shared with you is That's an important one. And there are others. Yeah, there are other important that. ideas about the Messiah there to be found. For me, honestly, um, I think of myself as a specialist in the time of Jesus. That's really what my work, my research is about. Okay. I want to know Jesus better. I want to know his times better. Because all meaning is contextual, Bill. We mm-hmm. understand meaning when we understand the context in which a sentence is spoken or a word is given. Mm-hmm. So we're constantly searching for biblical context. We need the context. We need that world. We need the texts of that world. We need the ideas of that world. Mm -hmm. If we're going to understand as best as we can the writings of the scriptures. And that's the thing that the Dead Sea Scrolls give us in in a huge way and in ways that we had never anticipated. So I... I've actually published a translation of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the, the non-biblical ones. Mm-hmm. It's one of the standard translations. And then working on that with two other evangelical scholars, you know, we came into contact with every detail of all these texts. And I, I have to say that um, the whole of it matters. It's, it's hard to say um, only this or only that. So in a very broad way, it's almost any time you're talking about the New Testament, there's something there that can be illuminated by these texts. Mm-hmm. And that matters enormously. Mm-hmm. Um, I think understanding Jesus is at the center. So that there's other texts I could re- relate to you that talk about what happens uh, at the time of Jesus, what people were expecting that are actually talking about Jesus in a roundabout way. Mm-hmm. So that's huge. Yeah. What do we care about more than Jesus? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Michael, if I go to seminary, am I going to get a course on the Dead Sea Scrolls? No. How am I going to learn about it? What what books do I read? What what do I do? This you, is fascinating. You need to listen to this radio program. Well, I get that. That's a starting point. But <laughs> now people are going, okay, what book should I buy? Well, what what's the best thing? What's the best way to study more and learn more about the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, I think that you can't do better than read the text themselves. Okay. So I would say, you know, go on Amazon and, and Google Dead Sea Scroll translations. Oh, And right. you'll find, I'm... I'm I'm, honestly, I'm speaking a little bit about my book, but there are other good translations out yeah. there so people can decide which one they would prefer. Um, it's a little hard. I would imagine. To read these ancient texts because it's a, such a different world. Mm-hmm. So um, 
a good translation will help you with that by giving you intros and headers and those sorts of things that'll make things a little easier. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you can also get hold of lots of different books if you just Google Dead Sea Scrolls on that same site. Yeah. Uh, that will gu- that will guide you into some of the understandings we've been talking about today. What about misinformation out there? Oh, there's lots of it. Okay, that's that's. Uh, Who do we trust? Me, you have to trust besides me. you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Who do we trust besides you? Um, I would say uh, trust the consensus okay. in a general way. Okay. Um, don't go with the outliers. Right. There are scholars with unusual theories about this, as there are about most scho- uh, areas of uh, endeavor. And so uh, stay in the golden mean, you might mm-hmm. say, as Aristotle would want you to do. Yeah. Any thoughts on what's happening in Israel right now? I have just 30 seconds left. I think it's tragic. I, um, I think it's tragic on, uh, on a lot of levels, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm not surprised. Yeah. Uh, I think that Israel is, uh, the thing about it, their situation is that God has put his name on them. Um, he never goes back on a promise he's made. Never. So they bear his name, and that means that uh, they are open to attack by the enemy, and yeah, that's so true. happening as always has yeah. happened. All right, you're going to have to come back because I have more Dead Sea Scroll questions. All right. You open open to that? I'm very open. Oh, good. Thank you so much. Thanks Dr. Michael Wise has been my guest. That's our show for the day. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. I have loved spending time with you. If you missed any of today's show, I can always encourage you to go to the podcast, MyFaithRadio.com, and have a wonderful night. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.